what a text we have before us, and I pray that it could become more clear as a result of our time together. Help us to shift our focus from the immediacy of our fears and our hurts and our disappointments to the permanency of who you are. We love you. Help us be on the edge of our seat because you're speaking. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Okay, so what is God doing? What is God doing? I looked at this text and I saw that there's a lot in here. A lot of these sermons are introduction ideas. There's many, many sermons within this text. Uh, I saw God revealing three truths, three truths, revealing that the king is on the move. Revealing that the un- unmistakable scent of life and death. And revealing the beauty of sincere living. We'll unpack those. Revealing that the king is on the move. Look at verse 14. Coming out of concern for his friend, he want, Paul wants to find Titus. Paul wants to connect with a friend and he's turning in his heart in thanksgiving. Look at verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Paul is expressing to us his life of faith. God is always leading the believer and the the apostles in a triumphal procession. Now, what's this? Of course, I think you probably have heard about this before. The idea that when a Caesar would conquer a foreign king, if the king is still alive, they would put that king on an ox cart, chain him down, perhaps have his children walking in front or behind the, the ox cart, Perhaps some of the vanquished soldiers who are still alive, able to walk, walking along, you see. Uh, Our Caesar, this is what our Caesar does. He conquers kings. You want to know how he conquers them? Well, there he is right there. He's chained down. He's chained up. It's 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 a noisy, by the way, noisy celebration. If, uh, if we were Romans, uh, you would not be uh, hanging back in your, in your apartment. Uh, you would be there on the street, and you'd be cheering on the, the king who's returned, our Caesar. Our King Jesus is on the move. That's really interesting. Like when Paul says that he, he's always leading us in this triumph, us, us in the in this triumph, we ask that wait, where where are we in the parade? <laughs> where are we? Are we on the sidelines watching? Not quite. Where are we? Are we are we part of the enemies that were overcome, overwhelmed, outdone? And I would suggest that we are. If you take Paul's vision and understanding and New Testament's understanding of the human condition that we are we are purchased, we are redeemed, we are conquered by the love of Jesus, the mercy of of our king. 
Jesus is the ascended king. Acts chapter 2 tells us that he is the one who sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the sign that he has conquered all principalities and powers and that the Father has received his offering. And now he's on the move through the church. He's on the move. And what's he doing? Well, he's moving into the darkness. Starts in Jerusalem, then Judea, and the uttermost parts of the world, right? And moving into the darkness. And what, what's he doing? Saul of Tarsus come to mind? He wasn't on the way to Damascus to have a Bible study with Christians. He was an enemy of God, conquered by the mercy of God. How does Jesus, we know that Psalm 110 says that Jesus is reigning now. Until he, makes, until he makes his enemies as a footstool for his, what? His feet. That's what kings do, by the way. They, you know, they got a nice chair and they have an ottoman, right? And they put their feet up, right? Put your feet up. That's the sign of like you're really in charge and you're really relaxed and you're, everything's good. Your kingdom is at, right? Our King Jesus is on the move. Have you sensed and felt his mercy? Have you turned and believed upon him as his mercy flooded your heart? King Jesus is on the move. I would suggest we're, we're, part of the, we're, we're part of the procession. He's leading us, and we're willing participants. Like, I love it. <laughs> I'm so glad I was conquered by this king. His mercy overwhelmed me, and I'm so glad he overcame all human Resistance. It's an interesting question. Where are we in this parade thing? Colossians 2.15 says, He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Well, how do you do that? Well, you rise from the dead. The rulers and authorities, all they have is the power of death, sort of. He rises from the dead and says, Now what will you do? By triumphing over them, Is God moving in your life? Think about that. Is the king on the move in your life? Do you think, even in troubled times, even in hard things, emotionally challenging moments, do, what's, what's happening right then? What, what, what gospel do you turn to? Where do you turn for saving power? What fills your mind's imagination? We talk about the transformation that's to happen in the Christian life. That's a beautiful word, isn't it? Transformation. I love the word transformation. There is to be in us this vision of God who is always working. Always working. And he is always on the move because of Jesus, our King, and that's really what's happening. That's really the, the story of history. The story of history is not what CNN says. The story of history is not what we're being reported. Though those might be helpful, those aren't the true story, the final story. And Paul willingly says, you know what? 
Where do you want to look for God's activity? Well, you look for what he does in Christ. And I will rejoice all the more in that. Paul shifts their focus. Oh, God must be working through this personality. Oh, God must be working through this rhetorical flash. That's the kind of church I like. I like that style, right? Paul is moving the, the, the Corinthians to the movement of God. The movement of God is for the preacher to discover more and more as his inability to do anything. And his words ultimately do not change hearts. He's just a servant in the room. Let the text do its work. Let the spirit take over and get out of the way. Stop being so self-referential in the pulpit. God is moving to those who are fighting depression. God is moving to those who are anxious. Jesus understands you. And he's leading you in a triumphal procession. It's beautiful. Look at, look at the rest of verse 14. And spreads, us, spreads through us the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The knowledge of him is being communicated through the, the preaching of this apostolic group that Paul had formed. Uh, the idea is an aroma, a fragrance. Verse 14, God is leading and he's manifesting. He's making also an effect going, uh, an effect is underway. Look at the rest of verse uh, 14. He spreads excuse me, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, and we are the aroma of Christ to God. The aroma is rising up among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Back to the procession, back to the parade. The thought, the Historians tell us that, of course, flowers are tossed out. See? Expressions of adoration to, to the Caesar, right? And these get crushed under the, the feet of the soldiers. And then that fragrance, the, the fragrance of these flowers is rising up as that, as that parade passes by, procession. Paul's using the imagery of the big event that people under... Rome's rule would clearly know and see, have seen, perhaps. And Paul uses the imagery of aroma. <laughs> There's an aroma. There's an aroma of, of the scent, an unmistakable scent of life and death. That's my second point. God is not only revealing that the king is on the move, but God is revealing the unmistakable scent of life and death or death. How does that happen? It happens in what 1 Corinthians 2 describes as the foolishness of preaching. You see, the, the, the preacher is to stand in, in front of a crowd and to proclaim the answer to man's problems. And people think about 
what are the what are what are the solutions to man's problems? People are thinking about that. All cultures, all groups, everyone's trying to think about that. And the preacher comes and or the missionary or the evangelist comes and they proclaim this is the solution to man's condition. One who lived this perfect life and died on a cross. And uh, this is received, the Apostle Paul tells us, as foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's foolishness. It's, it's, the, it's the folly of what is preached. How can that be a solution to anything? How can that solve anything? And Paul says that as this word is going out, as the, the life that's offered, it, to those who are being saved, it has a, an aroma to it. There's a beautiful quality uh, filling the air, as it were, like something cooking that you really appreciate. It, it, it has an aroma of life. But to those who judge it and say this is foolishness, it, there is a stench of death experienced. Do you know the firemen, communicate, uh, firemen report that they can... As they pull up to a fire, they can almost tell what kind of fire it is because of the smell. Electrical fire, right? Chemical fire, oil in the kitchen, right? It's interesting. Smell. Amazing, isn't it? Came across this interesting study. There's a study, an equal number of men and women wore absorbent underarm pads. You want to hear this? They wore absorbent, uh, equal number, uh, absorbent underarm pads while watching clips of scary or funny movies. They separated the happy armpit pads from the scared armpit pads. And uh, then they had people smell these armpit pads. Um, now, most of the subjects didn't smell anything, but women apparently we're good at picking out the scared male samples. <laughs> Three quarters of the women and half of the men were able to identify the one fearful male odor jar out of the six. But men could not detect the happy smell of other males or fear from females. Guys, we, we're messed up, man. We can't even, we can't even smell right. smell of death. Maybe you've been around it. It's unmistakable. Um, we I mean, right? An, an animal, um, human body. It can't be avoided. It's real. One time I did a memorial service here we had a reception afterwards, and we were there at the buffet table. And I had just given a you know, presentation of the gospel and encouraged people about the good news in Jesus. 
a lady leaned over the, uh, the mac and cheese and she says, I want you to know I don't need a mediator. And I said, well, I hope you don't sin. A little smart aleck. She was a Unitarian. And you can believe in Shakespeare or Buddha or fairies or anything works there. My point is this, is that I think you're all feeling this in our culture. The rejection of Christian exclusivism is, can be smelled. It's, it's, it's foolishness to proclaim Christ as the only way. There's a lot of pressure on churches to turn away from this truth. It's been happening for some time, long, long time, to proclaim that Christ is the only way. And to this, the Apostle Paul reflects out loud, he knows the gravity of what's going on. A sermon is not joke time. A sermon is not self-referential time, tell stories about the pastor's life or his week or whatever happened. A sermon is a moment of decision. The sermon is really coming from heaven itself through a flawed human being, and this is the moment. This is not a moment of, in, of indifference. Whether or not you make it to the sale at the mall this afternoon doesn't matter. But to hear the gospel proclaimed at the offer of mercy in Christ and then to esteem it as stupid. Do not underestimate the spiritual implications of that. And you have only to watch Jesus in his public ministry, to watch him as cities rejected him. He did not see that as an indifferent activity of their hearts. It had huge implications. Oh, by the way, toss in a few miracles as well. This is what's unique about Christian proclamation is it has a sobriety to it. And that's why the Apostle Paul then says, who is adequate for these things? Look at verse end of verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? The idea is who is worthy? Who can represent this gospel? You mean you have some who are just stepping up into the pulpit there at Corinth and saying, yeah, I got this. I got this. Let me add it. They don't have the proper humility. Who is sufficient for these things? There is the unmistakable scent or aroma of life, and there is the aroma of death. And now I think there's one last thought, and then I'm, then I'm wrapping this up. Now, there's a lot going on in this next, uh, next thought here. Look at verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. I wish he hadn't said so many. That's a troubling little phrase. So many peddlers of God's word. I mean, the Christian faith has just gotten started, right? I mean, anyway, as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, but as men of sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Um, peddlers, um, the idea here is this. There were merchants who would sell a bottle of wine 
and it had been diluted. And they would pass it off as a nicely undiluted bottle of wine. They were peddlers. They were not sincere in their product. Dishonest merchants watering down wine. Have we seen that today in the life in the church? It's happened and it is happening. You want to appeal to the people that you speak to. You want them to like you. You want this to be applicable. You want this to be inspiring. You want this to be um, relevant. There it is. Relevant, right? Relevant. And so in the quest to be practical, pragmatic, relevant, the church loses the gospel. We've had two revolutions in the last 40 years or more. One is the therapeutic revolution. This comes through the door of psychology, perhaps going all the way back to to Freud. The therapeutic revolution is a redefining of my problems. It's my needs. It's my memories from childhood. It's, It's my experience in this life. I need to feel better about myself. It's self-esteem and all these other subjects. It's the therapeutic revolution has done a double whammy on the church and uh, many have bought into it. Another one is called the managerial revolution. And that is that we, and you engineers in the room are perking up right now. Uh, the managerial re- revolution comes in, you have consultants for the church and you have someone who says, hey, you know, your church could grow if you could park 200 cars here. Don't you know that? And by the way, if your building was bigger, you could do this and that. And so, and then it's, it's the idea that you can manage the growth of the church. Um, maybe jazz music will do it. Yeah, that's it. That's what will work, right? And so it is that you, you, you put first priorities, or first priorities instead of the gospel, you put these other things. So think about that, the therapeutic revolution and the managerial revolution. And Paul is saying there is a way to live sincerely. He says right there, we are commissioned by God in the sight of God. Look at the end of verse 17. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Um, Sincerity. Paul says that's what we have going for us because we live before God's face. Uh, Mark Twain said, sincerity is everything. If you can fake that, you've got it made. But Paul's indicating that there's a way to pursue sincerity. What is that? Before the face of God. Before the face of God, he says, that's where we live. And we know the stakes are high. And we know the pressure is high. When we go into Athens, we want them to like us. We want to fit in. We want this to be understandable and acceptable to them. We, we're hanging on, and the only thing that helps us is to live before the face of God. Do, do you live there? Do, do you have devotional time with God's word? Can you say that God's word is working such that you are brought sincerely your, your motives for living, your life is brought before 
before him. I'd love to help you with that. You can help me. It's such a critical thing. We, we Christians compartmentalize our lives. We do that a great deal. We don't live quorum Deo, that's a Latin phrase, before the face of God at your work, before your face of God uh, in your family, before the face of God wherever you go, not just church stuff, before you, this is integrity. R.C. Sproul, one of my professors in school, he said to live all of life, quorum Deo, is to live a life of integrity. It is a life of wholeness that finds its unity and coherence in the majesty of God. A fragmented life is a life of disintegration. Do you feel that today in our culture? It is, a, it is marked by inconsistency, disharmony, confusion, conflict, contradiction, and chaos. The Christian who compartmentalizes his or her life into two sections the religious and the non-religious, has failed to grasp the big idea. The big idea is that all of life is religious and none of life is, or none of life is religious. To divide life between the religious and the non-religious is itself, is itself a sacrilege. So Paul introduces us to the sincere life. The sincere life. And that is we live before the face of God. And of course God is faithful to us. He's faithful He's faithful to bring our motives to him. He's faithful to purge us, cleanse us of, of, of the dross of sin. He's faithful to move in us to repent and to change. Such is the, the, the God, the revealer. This is what God is doing. He's, he's in the movement of, of a king. He's moving in a king. He, he's, he's faithful to, to bring about this unique scent of life. This scent of life and sadly a, an aroma of death. And then he's faithful to give us a way to be sincere in life and to find such spiritual power in that. So let's pray and ask God that we could live such ways as has been described for us here in this passage. Father, thank you for your gospel that tells us there's a king who's moving. He's at work. Father, we, we're grateful that you are correcting us, disciplining us, training us. I, Father, I pray that you will move in us to live sincere lives. Father, are there apologies? Are there uh, confessions? Are there people we need to talk to to come alongside with and, and to begin living more integrated as a person? Father, this is spiritual power. And I ask that you would grant to us a willingness to embrace that. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.